let's look at our Bibles and we'll turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and in order to give honor to God and His Holy Word, we'll stand as we read James chapter 1, 9 through 11. Let's stand as we hear God's Word. James 1, verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Let's pray together. Thank you for this, your word, O Father. We thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and we pray that you would help us to receive and believe this, your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You've probably heard of, uh, I can't remember the name of the author, but there's a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Well, there may be, Maybe a good title for us to have a, um, a book entitled The Hard Sayings of James. Because some of the stuff that we read in James is, is pretty hard and difficult. And I would appreciate your prayer in my preparation and in my preaching. There's nothing more that I want than to be faithful. I, I want to be faithful to God's Word. I want to be faithful in giving an accurate interpretation but I need you to pray that God would give me wisdom to interpret his word rightly. And, and I hope that you find that um, this sermon on James to be both a help and, and something that's not, that, that's something that's balanced in its understanding of taking scripture as a whole here. Um, this book of James, and the reason why we might find it a little bit different than other epistles is because it's very rich in what we would call wisdom literature. James draws from a lot of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and you, you see the type of language in the preaching of James, in this epistle of James. Um, give an example is um, chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And um, so, to me, this... A lot of this is so reminiscent of the Proverbs. The Proverbs is a book that's loaded with uh, the comparison of foolishness versus wisdom and the necessity of seeking wisdom, and that wisdom comes from the fear of God ultimately. And as we, um, we'll look a little bit more at the context as we go to the first point of this message, but um, James is what we would call a general epistle uh, written not just to a particular church, but to the church abroad to be read throughout all of the churches in the known world at this time. And he, you can see that there when he says that it's written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. It's not just to be written to the Jewish converts, but it's to be written to all Christians. Okay. Uh, as we look at today's text, the main focus is that you are to glory in your inheritance in Christ. You are to glory in your inheritance in Christ. That's the main focus of today's text. And the first main point is that you are, um, teaches what you are to glory in. So the first main point is what you are to glory in. 
And secondly, the humiliation of the rich. So let's look at this first main point. What you are to glory in. Verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. The glory that he is to have is in his high position. Now, before we get into identifying what this means here, I, I want to give some of the background of what's going on at the time in history in this particular uh, epistle. The mention of this particular epistle of the audience is given back. Uh, so when we read verse 9, we interpret verse 9 in light of the audience, which is back in the, the beginning in verse 1. Um, it's written to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. Now, when you think of the dispersion, you had a dispersion after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. You had a dispersion of the Jews after the Babylonians conquered Judah, the southern kingdom. And then after that, there was a return where the people of God returned to the promised land again. And then lo and behold, they're under the oppression of the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, they're under the oppression of the Romans. Okay? Um, and another dispersion, you could say, happened because not only of the persecution of the Jews, but also because of the persecution of the Roman uh, Empire. If you look, uh, you don't have to look there, but I have it in your notes, Acts uh, 8, verse 1. This is after Stephen was stoned. After Stephen was stoned, it mentions that great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay, this persecution mentioned in, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, is the persecution of the Jews against the Christians. Um, the Jewish, uh, you could say the Sanhedrin, that 70, I think some, someone said it was 70 plus 1, but that Sanhedrin had power and authority given by Rome to exercise, you could say, restrictions on, on the faith at, in, 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 under their rule. And with permission from the Roman government, they were allowed to imprison and, and even put to death in some occasions. Now, that great persecution caused the people to, to spread abroad. Um, this was the same persecution wherein Saul of Tarsus was given authority to enter house after house and dragging out men and women and, and families and even and bringing them into prison. And the Jews sought to persecute Christians in other regions as well. In Acts 14, there was persecution that was stirred up in Iconium. Um, the Jews stirred up the Gentiles to then persecute the Christians. And they even wanted to stone them, but then they fled Iconium and went to other regions as well. Another dispersion, you could say. So you might say to yourself, when James here is speaking of the brother of humble circumstances, he was likely speaking to many Christians who lost their homes and lost their livelihoods, their businesses because of persecution. You think about that. 
if you were a Christian in a Jewish community, the persecution not only was that um, you were having your life threatened, but that you could have economic persecution as well. Um, Jesus mentions in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He prepared his disciples for these trials by telling them, by warning them of this. And many of them did. They lost homes. They lost family. Even some of their own family sought to report them and, and, and bring persecution upon their own siblings. Both Jews and Gentiles opposed Christians in many various ways. They refused to um, acknowledge them, to give them business, to allow them employment, to use their services to buy their goods. If you were a skilled worker, you might have had to resort to doing meaning uh, some, some very meaningless, very bad manual labor rather than the skill that you had because of persecution of that sort. So when we get to James chapter 1, verse 9, I do want us to notice that it's not that he's saying a person because of meager or humble circumstances is to glory in his high position just because he's poor. In other words, not every person on this planet because they're poor is to have glory in their poverty. The key word here is brother. It is brother, the brother in Christ or the sister in Christ. They are to glory in their position as a son or daughter of God and a co-heir with Christ. That is the key word here. A brother is to glory in his high position. So it's not being poor that is the high position, but it's the eternal inheritance given to the brother that is giving him a high position. So in other words, Christians don't glory in their position of being poor necessarily, but in light of believers and suffering and poverty in this life, they have an eternal inheritance treasures in heaven where Christ is seated. And that's what they are to glory in. After the resurrection, believers will rejoice in having a place prepared for them in the new Jerusalem, but also not only in heaven, but in the new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we glory in as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul put it another way in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time Including, including poverty, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. James goes on and says something in chapter 2. Look, look, look a little forward there. James 2, verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. 
Now, if someone who doesn't have much in this life, if they have Christ and they have faith in Christ in the life to come, they will have a great inheritance. Um, every Christian person, no matter what their station, whether they are rich nor poor, they can glory in their inheritance and what they have in Jesus Christ, that eternal inheritance in and through Jesus. Now look at the humiliation of the rich mentioned in verses 9 through 10. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. We'll stop there. Now, the word humility is opposite of pride. But that's not how it's being used here. Uh, a person of humble circumstances means a person of meager circumstances. In other words, a person who's poor. In other words, not much to live on, maybe not much clothes, not much of a home. They are a poor brother. Uh, James said that the rich man, though, is to glory in his humiliation. Uh, probably the best interpretation of the rich man glorying in his humiliation is that him being brought low. Okay, now keep this in mind. James here is not saying the brother who is rich. He's just saying the rich man. So he's not saying, he's not comparing a rich Christian versus a poor Christian. He's comparing a rich, poor Christian in comparison to a general rich person, not necessarily a brother. And I hope that makes sense there. He goes on to talk about the rich being brought low and giving this illustration of the flowering grass which, which withers. Look at verses 10 through 11. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So here he's not calling the rich man a brother, he's just, calling, he's just saying a rich man. So here's a contrast. Scripture's full of contrasts. But the contrast is, would you rather be a poor brother with an eternal inheritance or a person who has a worldly riches but then loses it all after death? Which one would you rather be? I'd rather be the one who has the eternal inheritance. So, it, although the rich man seems to flourish in this life, he and all that he has will fall away like the grass which withers under the sun during a Louisiana drought and 100 degree weather for 10 days straight as we had. The flower that had was so beautiful withers and falls off and its beauty is no more. Now, I want us to interpret this passage by letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, we don't, we don't take this passage and say, this passage teaches that it is wicked and sinful to have any money or wealth whatsoever. 
Some people could read this and try to come up with that interpretation. But letting Scripture interpret Scripture, God encourages us and as His people to be good stewards of their money. A couple examples is Proverbs 22.7, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. What it's saying here is, is that if you're, uh, if you're a good steward of your money, uh, try not to get in debt because if you're in great debt, you're, you're like a slave, right? Uh, try to not be strapped with debt if you can avoid it at all cost. Um, we're going to get to there when, in my study of Luke. And out of all the parables, it is one of the most difficult to preach on. But in Luke 16, in Luke 16, 1 through 12, uh, Jesus gives a parable of an unjust steward, which, which some would call him a, uh, a steward who is um, shrewd. I want to give you the conclusion of that particular parable. What Jesus says is that you are to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, the wealth of unrighteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not money in and of itself that's evil. It's the love of money that's evil. But if God has granted you wealth, one of the best uses of wealth is to make friends for the sake of the kingdom. When God can and God has used the wealth of some for the furtherance of the kingdom. And that is one major way that we are to use wealth. Uh, make use of wealth and that is the faithful use of unrighteous wealth there mentioned in Luke 16. Um, for instance, the work of deacons. If you have poor people in the community um, that are in dire need, if the church is able to minister to them, we can also not only minister to them to help them with, with some of their financial needs, we can minister to them the, the word of truth of the gospel. And that thereby we're using wealth or the, we're using money to help with in preaching the gospel in that sense. The conclusion of that parable in Luke 16 is that no servant can have two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or else you will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Keep in mind that when you have wealth, wealth is a tool, an instrument to be used for his kingdom's sake. It's not something to be an, as an idol, right? It's a tool to be used. Now, another passage that you might get to and you might wonder, well, what are we to do with Jesus telling some, as he did the, the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, sell all your possessions, distribute it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. Is that the call for every Christian? Are we all to sell every possession that we have to distribute it to the poor, and that's what's required of us to follow Jesus? Now, again, when Jesus tells this to the rich young ruler, it says that he was extremely rich. And very likely he had a problem with covetousness and 
he loved his wealth and his money, and for him it was an idol. So Jesus told him, you know, maybe you need to get rid of that idol, give it to the poor, and come follow me. But notice Jesus doesn't require that of everyone. Another rich man, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus uh, mentioned in Luke 19, had great wealth. Uh, when he came to faith in Christ, he gave half of his wealth to the poor. He made restitution for those. Uh, he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And after he made restitution to those whom he defrauded, he still kept his home. He still kept a, a decent amount of wealth. But Jesus didn't say, well, that's not enough, Zacchaeus. Sell all that you have and follow me. No, Jesus said this. Today, salvation has come to this house. For Zacchaeus, the way that he used his money for the poor, but also to make restitution, was acceptable in God's sight. And he said, today salvation has come to this house. One last passage I want us to look at is 1 Timothy 6. Keep your place in James, but 1 Timothy 6. This is a passage where Paul taught Christians who were rich how they ought to live. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Now, before I start reading, keep in mind, he doesn't tell those who are rich Christians, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. But it tells you what, what is instructed, okay? 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and following. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. In other words, don't be proud because you're rich. Be humble. He says, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, don't trust in your riches, but trust me. But trust God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. In other words, God has blessed you with riches. Use it for the sake of the kingdom. Don't be proud. Don't trust in your riches. Trust in God instead. Now, keep in mind this, brothers and sisters. The way that we use money is not something that either makes us acceptable in God's sight or not. In other words, we're not saved based on whether or not we give X number of dollars to those who are poor or whether we perfectly keep God's law in the use of how we, we use our money. At the same time, the way we use our money is in a fruit and evidence of a true and lively faith. We are saved not by how we use our money, but we are saved by what Christ has done. We are saved by Jesus Christ, who had the riches of heaven, seated at the right hand of God, 
worshipped by the angels, he came down on, upon the earth and made himself poor for our sake, that in the eternal inheritance we might be made rich through the, his grace, that he bled and he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead so that we would be accepted in God's sight. And then the way that as redeemed Christians, the way that we live shows forth our faith as a lively faith rather than a dead faith. All right, let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, that you made your Son to be sin for us, that in him we have both forgiveness and also the righteous obedience of Christ imputed, counted, reckoned unto us. We pray that you would help us to be humble. Uh, we pray that you would help us to be those who use our, our money for the sake of your kingdom. Help us, we pray, to minister to those in need, but also we pray, help us to minister the word of truth, which is the greatest need that all men have in this life. Help us, we pray, to love and honor you, to rejoice in you, to rejoice in that wonderful inheritance that you've given to the saints. We thank you for your holy word, and we thank you for our blessed Lord Jesus. For we pray all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll turn for our closing psalm, uh, 147b. 147b, 1 through 4. Oh, praise the Lord, for it is good. Let's stand and sing.